This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 10th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, as the number of COVID cases continues to be low, various public health authorities have wrestled with designations. Is this an emergency? And if so, when does that emergency end? Now, two important agencies, the WHO and the CDC, have declared that the emergency associated with COVID is ending. So today I'd like to discuss what this means. Eric, let's start with the WHO. The agency first declared COVID-19 to be a public health emergency of international concern on January 30th, 2020, when the disease was largely confined to Wuhan. This past week, it ended the emergency. So what does this mean? Steve. I think that it's first important to put the emergency declaration in context. There have been seven such emergency declarations since 2009, which have varied widely in terms of size and degree of risk. These started with a swine flu outbreak and have included two different episodes of Ebola. There are still two ongoing WHO public health emergencies, MPOX, a disease whose incidence has declined substantially, and polio, a disease where the highest risk is fairly restricted to areas of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Though with decreasing vaccination, we're seeing outbreaks in other areas, including the U.S. I'm listing all of these to make it clear that WHO's definition of public health emergency varies considerably from serious diseases that are confined to small regions to less severe disease that spread globally. I'd also keep in mind that the number of COVID cases currently is much higher today than it was when the public health emergency was declared. So it's not clear that there's a consistent definition of what constitutes an emergency. So you ask, what does it mean to be ending? You could have equally well asked, what does it mean to have an ongoing emergency? By virtue of being an international organization, the WHO has the power to bring countries to the table, but not really much enforcement power. Because of the magnitude of COVID-19, it didn't take much to get individual countries to focus on control measures. Certainly, the WHO could provide many smaller and less wealthy countries with important expertise to help them set policy. Of course, that technical expertise doesn't require an emergency declaration. So what did it accomplish? One important role for the WHO was in trying to increase access to vaccines, particularly in Africa and parts of Asia. I'm not sure that we know enough to give a report card on this effort, but it certainly did prove challenging. Many countries were unable to get vaccines until long after there were such high levels of disease that most people became immune. And I suspect that access to both treatments and preventive measures is going to be a major continuing challenge for the WHO, irrespective of specific diseases and emergencies. I think that the WHO and some of the affected countries had much better success in establishing bilateral and regional public health responses. This was particularly true in Africa but I'm not sure what role the emergency declaration played in that. Altogether, I think there's some symbolic value to ending the WHO public health emergency of international concern, but I doubt that it means too much practically. And of course, COVID-19 has decreased substantially and is currently much less of a threat, but it remains a major cause of death in many places. It could certainly get worse again, especially with the emergence of new and less related viral strains. So declaring the emergency over doesn't end COVID-19. So, Eric, I agree that practically the ending of the public health emergency means little to the biology of the virus and its transmission. We've witnessed that the virus continues to evolve to allow it to replicate, and it causes disease along the way. 
this is unlikely to change, although, as you point out, it's attenuated in terms of the seriousness of illness that it has caused, whether that is attenuation intrinsic to the virus or in reflection to the broad host immunity that has emerged across communities through vaccination and infection. Either way, we see less severe illness, but we still see a fair amount of transmission, and this requires us to stay vigilant whether or not we have a declaration of public health emergency. In fact, many respiratory viruses spread in this way, including influenza, RSV, and a variety of other pathogens that we're all familiar with. We're seeing measles surge in different parts of the world, likely related to waning vaccination and associated immunity. So we do need to stay vigilant, but we need to disentangle transmission from serious illness, though this is still ongoing and likely to be ongoing. So we have to be vigilant in our response. However, the declaration of the public health emergency being over does have a big impact on public perception. And the activities associated with the overarching responses by agencies such as WHO, U.S. government, and other governments. So it does have not only a symbolic, but a practical implication that we have to pay attention to as we try to continue to minimize the severe illness that respiratory viruses, COVID-19 included, can cause. We do need to understand that we are now at a different place with COVID. It is more endemic than epidemic. However, epidemics are likely to occur in populations who are more vulnerable, or if the virus alters in a way, as you point out, to be different in its virulence, such as an Omicron-like event. So we do need to pay attention and to have proper surveillance in place. And we also need to think carefully as a community about how do we prevent severe illness and in whom. And what we continue to learn about COVID is certain populations are at higher risk, such as those with a first infection and those who have a weakened immune system. So we need to think carefully about how we target our preventive energies. But this is much more of a local issue than a global issue, although clearly it has global implications given the populations around the world who may be more vulnerable. So I do think that from a societal standpoint, this is very important because it allows us to approach the new normal, which we're all in the process of defining and need to get there, as this will help society function better and improve health in many, many other ways. But it does not mean that the virus has gone on holiday. The virus will continue to do what it has been doing for the last year. And we need to be smart in how we respond, albeit more in local targeted ways than a more uniform global response. I think this is a healthy evolution. On the other hand, it should not be one where we say the pandemic is over, the virus is over, illness associated with the virus is over, but this will be more of a local response utilizing resources where they're most needed. Lindsay, I wanted to ask about the various local responses to COVID-19. The CDC is obviously the preeminent public health agency in the U.S. And to a great extent, we don't need the WHO to set policy in the U.S. We have our own agency, and that's equally true in a number of other developed countries. But 
when it comes to setting policy in countries that don't have the tremendous resources we do for public health, how much of a role has WHO played in helping out these countries to respond to the epidemic? Well, Eric, I'm not an international policy setter. But I think as we've witnessed as infectious disease practitioners, researchers, journal editors, and aiding in the public health response, I think we've all witnessed the value of cross-border learning. These pathogens don't behave one way in one country and another way in another country. So I think it's incredibly important to learn how transmission, disease, response to disease, treatment of disease to prevent severe illness occurs everywhere to inform anywhere. So though we have a strong CDC in this country, and I would argue it needs to be strengthened and local public health departments in states and cities and towns need to be strengthened because that's really where the public health is delivered. It's not delivered by the CDC in my community, it's delivered by my community. And so I think that's a reflection of what goes on globally as well. But you are correct. The US CDC is not the only public health response agency that is successful or partially successful. There are many in Europe and elsewhere. But we all learn from each other as we respond to a new pathogen that's emerging. You know, three years ago, there was much debate if SARS-CoV-2 could be spread asymptomatically. And that was an incredible controversy that had broad public health implications. And that required much discussion and research from different communities and analysis by different public health authorities before we as a community accepted that that was likely going on. And that had profound implications. So I think you're correct that the US CDC is terrific, although there are many ways it can improve, but it really is a local phenomenon in terms of the delivery of public health, and that's local everywhere. And cross-learning is the only way to respond to a new public health infectious disease that's threatening rapid transmission everywhere. The US government's emergency declaration has important legal implications. The CDC has announced that this will end this week. So, Lindsay, you and co-authors recently wrote about what will change once the public health emergency in the United States ends. So, Steve, you're correct that as the public health emergency declaration sunsets, statutory authorities associated with it also sunset. And this is something we need to pay attention to as a community, a U.S. community. What we do in the U.S. affects other countries just as what goes on in other countries affect us. But the statutory authorities are unique to the U.S. and have profound implications in how we deliver care. So it's something we need to think about and pay attention to so we can continue to deliver care to our patients with COVID, but also so we can improve the regulatory environment so we are more responsive to public health emergencies as they arise, and they will arise again and actually continue because we're in the middle of several outbreaks of concern that we all need to be more responsive to. So certain authorities the U.S. government provides or authorized to the FDA and CDC, and also local state governments and insurance agencies about how new therapies can be authorized, paid for, and distributed are all implicit in the legislation and have different implications across the country. Focusing on one that is most important to those of us caring for patients is how we have new treatments to treat our patients. By definition, if there's a new disease, there are unlikely to be targeted treatments for it. So as evidence emerges that allows us to know what new therapies work, 
there has to be a statutory authority to allow it to be used broadly. And that's something we've all become familiar with in terms of emergency use authorization, EUA. And there are two different statutes that allow that to be deployed broadly. And we've witnessed it over the last three years, it being applied in different ways for therapies to treat and prevent and diagnose COVID. And this is an important regulatory framework that allows us to try and be more responsive to a rapidly spreading infectious disease, where often our government is not nearly as responsive as we would like it to be. With this sunsetting, that is the public health emergency and certain associated regulatory framework associated with that, it raises the question about how those diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines that are authorized under the EUA framework, how they will continue and how new agents will be authorized for us to be able to respond. And my understanding, and again, I'm not a regulatory authority or involved in the legal structure of this, but my understanding and discussion with agency colleagues and others is that the FDA in particular will look to the currently authorized response elements, and I say that because it's diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines, and work with the sponsors of those different modalities to find a way to either receive full approval or to have those response elements be withdrawn. Hopefully over the next several months, full approval will be obtained for those elements that we all find very helpful in the response. And I say it a little bit vague because it includes diagnostics, so the ability to diagnose COVID. There is a different framework for full authorization versus treatments for prevention versus severe illness, as we've seen several agents be repurposed in this direction. And then vaccines, many of which have already received full approval, so will be less affected because the data sets needed to determine safety and efficacy in the usual way have already occurred. So, Steve, I think it's complicated because it will affect how things are paid for. It will affect which tools we have to diagnose and their accessibility, and it will impact our treatments. But already, many of these issues have been addressed, and many of them are fully available to us. But it will be a balance as the agency works with different sponsors to determine full approval versus emergency use authorization, which cannot go on indefinitely. Lindsay, I know that you addressed this a bit in your writing. At the time that the declaration ends, which is just days away now, how will it affect a practitioner on the day after it's gone? Is there anything that's going to abruptly become unavailable? Eric, I don't know, but my understanding is there's authority to the secretary, DHHS, and there's authority to the FDA commissioner. And my understanding and again, legal scholars can correct this, is at the end of the declaration impacts the typical process that the secretary uses to declare emergency and response, while the FDA commissioner has additional authorities that will allow an orderly transition. So my understanding is there'll be no change in what you or I or our colleagues can do clinically next week or the week after. But what will happen is over the next months and beyond, Things that are authorized will find a process to either achieve full approval or not, so that it won't be an indefinite state of an authorized access to medical measures for years. It'll be months. 
but there should be no change in the next week or two. It'll be an orderly process to allow practice to continue as we understand it, as we care for our patients. Speaking of changes, both the White House COVID czar and the head of the CDC have announced that they're stepping down soon. So what can we say about the people who've had the job of managing this crisis? Steve, this is a great opportunity to offer thanks, not just to these individuals, but for all of the people practicing public health on the front lines. It's been an extraordinarily difficult time to work in public health. Not only have practitioners met with skepticism, which often happens, but there's been real hatred and there have been threats of physical violence directed not only against them, but often against their families. I know this has driven people from the profession and it will likely make it much more difficult to deal with the next emergency that arises. But for those who've stuck with it, we've seen real courage. And I want to salute those who've done their best to help in these trying times. Eric, I want to amplify one of your really important points. We need to remember the healthcare response over the last three years, particularly three years ago when this was spreading rapidly. We did not understand the biology of the organism, SARS-CoV-2, and how and to whom it caused severe illness. And our healthcare workers were right on the front lines, caring for patients, putting themselves and their families at risk. And sadly, many of our colleagues succumbed to infection with COVID. And we cannot thank our community enough for that response. In addition to that, our public health authorities have worked diligently day and night in very complex circumstances locally and globally to try and respond. And as you are grateful, so am I to their diligence in trying to respond to a very difficult process. And it's hard to fully appreciate responding to a process that is not understood. In retrospect, it's easy to say better decisions could have been done here or there. But prospectively, we were learning as we go. And that's one of the challenges as we close this chapter of the pandemic is remembering how difficult it is to make the best decisions when you have inadequate information. And as new information emerges, we make better decisions. And our public health authorities, both Ashish and Rochelle, and their teams and organizations have been incredibly responsive, caring, diligent in trying to improve this response. And we need to thank them and their associated organizations and the organizations elsewhere in the world, as we talked about other public health authorities who have done equally hard work in equally trying circumstances. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.